This week on the In-Depth Podcast. Lions were never put on the threatened or protected species um, list in South Africa. Wildlife conservationist Kevin Richardson remembers how he first got involved with big predators and eventually became known as the Lion Whisperer. I had no idea um, the impact that these animals would have on my life. Richardson's YouTube channel has delighted millions, featuring videos of him snuggling and playing with lions and leopards as if they were indoor cats. But his near miraculous interactions with these wild animals has also gotten some backlash. Any person who does something extreme, um, you're always gonna get the normal person looking at them as if they're nuts. When we visited him at his wildlife sanctuary just outside of Pretoria, South Africa in 2019, he explained how these daring bonds are developed. Eye contact's good, but staring's bad, you know. And the work he's doing to protect Africa's dwindling lion population through education and legislation. A lot of these um, activities are actually, I would say, murder. All that's coming up right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. To what extent do you think lions end up extinct? Well, I think if we carry on along the same road, uh, by 2050, there's a good chance that lions would become extinct in the wild. Uh, in captivity, it's a different story because we have the oversupply and the excess of breeding of, of lions for obviously a different market. But uh, the way um, conflict and habitat loss is going in the wild, yeah, it's a reality. Um, what do you think the likelihood is of that happening? Very high. Um, I think what, if we're carrying on again along the, the same uh, path or trajectory, um, at best we can hope for protected areas that contain these almost um, finite population sizes. Uh, but these, uh, almost the pipe dream of uh, the bygone era of lions kind of roaming free in these areas where um, communities and lions are living in harmony. Um, I think unless something radical changes, that's gonna, that's gonna you know, fizzle out. How have the number of lions dropped in Africa? Let me give you an example to put it into perspective in my scenario, uh, just in the short time that I've been working with lions. Um, when I started working with lions, there were numbers thrown about of uh, lions estimated in the region of 120 to 150,000. Now we're looking at th that um, revised figure of between 15 and 20,000. Wow. Yeah. That's how, in my time working with lions, how the numbers have dropped off. We have lost, I'd say, 90 to 95 percent of the habitat or the range, the former range that lions used to occupy they've been uh, extirp extirpated from. So it is a, it's almost like a silent extinction because uh, not many people know about it. When you talk to people about lions, they go, but they're prolif prolific. Um, when I went in my last trip to Africa, I saw lions everywhere. So that gives us the idea that lions are okay. Explain what you're allowed to legally hunt in Africa. In Africa, it differs from country, country to country. So, uh, for example, in South Africa, um, you know, the, you can you could pretty much hunt most species. Uh, Kenya banned hunting in the late 70s, but they've also seen a drop in, in wildlife. So it's, you know, anyone who wants to argue or say that it's, hunt, you know, trophy hunting is the, is the direct contributor to, to the demise of lions, it's, it's disingenuous. Um, hunting definitely has a role to play in certain areas where overhunting takes place. 
and unethical hunting. Um, but uh, yeah, certainly, uh, as I say, in South Africa, most uh, species are on the menu. Why in some places are you allowed to legally hunt endangered species? I don't know, you know, obviously each country has their own um, uh, national norms and standards uh, and they consult people and some governments are corrupt in Africa so money talks and you know walks um, so there is a lot of that but definitely uh, corruption is a big big problem in Africa um, there's a lot of power um, in the hunting fraternities because of money I mean there's a lot of money ch exchanging hands um, so yeah, you could, you could understand why in certain areas uh, hunting is rough. How would you best explain what canned hunting is? Canned hunting, for me, it's actually my pet hate and um, probably because it's so close to home. Uh, the animals that you saw today would uh, most likely have landed up being hunted or being utilized in the industry in, sh in some shape or form. It's not hunting. A lot of these um, uh, activities are actually, I would say, murder or shooting. Um, and a lot of the people involved, uh, or you know, are unwittingly involved. So sometimes even the hunters coming out from uh, United States or from Europe are, are misled into believing that they are actually trophy hunting a wild animal. I think that's half the problem here with the industry is the, the lies and deceit. The second half or problem with the industry is the welfare. You know, how are these animals cared for and looked after prior, uh, uh, before uh, they are then uh, given up and, uh, to the industry? A lot of them live in absolute, you know, disgraceful conditions. And it's, it's really, um, it's something that we fight against because we're trying to bring to the people who are pro hopefully watching the show's attention is that those lions that you come to South Africa to pet, um, in most likelihood, would land up in this industry. And when you speak to most people and you say to them, would you pet that lion if you knew that it was going to be hunted? They would say no. So this is the issues, the welfare and, and the lies and deceit. How do breeders that are supplying the lions treat the animals? Okay, so I'm not gonna say all breeders are bad in terms of the way the animals are treated. Uh, by and large in South Africa, and I'm, I, I keep on referring to South Africa because it's by, um, by and large, the biggest culprit in the canned hunting industry. Um, there's an estimate of between 230 and 300 registered lion breeders. I'm not going to say all 300 are bad, but I can tell you from footage that regularly makes its way onto the internet, onto social media, you can see that the lions are being mistreated. They are kept in um, conditions that are not conducive uh, to lions. Um, for example, 30, 40 cats of the same sex being put in very small enclosures. Um, this causes fighting, they scrap for food, they don't get correct diets. So we've got, you know, metabolic bone diseases, we've got various other anomalies that crop up, inbreeding, um, the list goes on. Uh, not too long ago, more than 100 lions and other big cats were found at a South African farm in terrible condition. Absolutely. Uh, another expose found a slaughterhouse killed 54 lions in two days at a facility that was calling itself an eco farm. 
what do you know about situations like that? Well, I know both situations because obviously when these crop up, um, my inbox gets flooded. Those slaughterhouses are legit and real because there's a quota being implemented to export um, a certain amount of lion bones to uh, Southeast Asia. So a quota of 800 skeletons, but we know that this um, is not the case um, because there's far more than that. Um, so yeah, it, it, if you look at the conditions that those lines were kept in before they were euthanized, it was horrific. I mean, one line was kept in a, in a crate without uh, water or food for, I think it was uh, uh, almost a week. Um, so even though these animals' destiny is death, they still, there's no respect in the way that they're treated before the inevitable. Why is this legal? <laughs> I, 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 to supply a demand, I suppose. Uh, the line bone trade. Um, or, or canned hunting. It's a good question. I mean, a lot of activists and animal welfareists and NGOs like my foundation and, and what I've been, you know, harping on about for so many years uh, to anyone who cares to listen is that. Why, why is it legal? Because there should be norms and standards as to how these majestic animals are kept. And to be clear, canned hunting is hunting where the animals don't even have a chance. Yeah, well, let me explain. I mean, a lot of people have their definition of canned hunting. I think any lion that is hunted um, and doesn't stand a chance of evading the hunter um, is, is a canned hunt. And, you know, when you restrict an animal's movements, either psychologically or physically, I would say that that's also a canned hunt. So if I'm taking a lion and I'm, I'm baiting that lion at a waterhole and I'm hiding in a hide, and, and the lion comes to the bait and I shoot it. I don't care whether that lion was born in captivity or the wild. That's for me a canned lion hunt because the lion does not stand a chance of evading the hunter. And so its basic instincts are going to kick in. One of which is to find the nearest fence and pace up and down. <coughs> Excuse me. The other one is to home back to where it came from. So there's many psychological constraints. And if that animal is um, then shot, that's also a canned hunt. So one needs to be careful about thinking that canned hunting is only when a lion is shot in a small enclosure, because that's what a lot of people think. In the South African government once effectively banned this, why was it overturned? Uh, it was never uh, effectively banned. It was uh, uh, put on the cards to be banned um, by uh, an environment, uh, our environmental minister at the time. Okay. And then he was taken to court. And then the court case spanned many, many years. Uh, got caught up in the legal process. And then eventually the outcome was that um, in this particular case, the Minister of Environment didn't have a mandate over lions because actually they were being bred almost agriculturally. And so that it, 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 it fitted more in the, the, the lap of the Minister of Agriculture rather than environmental affairs. And so it kind of like was never, lions were never put on the threatened or protected species um, list in South Africa. They were always just put in a separate little wait here um, compartment. This was in 2006. Mm -hmm. We're now in 2019 and we still haven't had it banned. So that should answer the question that we talk, talked about earlier about influence of the industry and corruption. What do you think the solution is? I think my solution is a, a phasing out period. Okay. I think what, what, what could happen is we can say, listen guys, um, it's 2020. 
let's um, have a, a situation where by 2030, mm -hmm. this is no longer. So we're giving you 10 years to kind of get your, your, your you know, shop in order. Tell about the park where you used to work. So I think if I talk about the park, I need to give the backstory because it wasn't like I woke up one morning and decided I'm going to go and work with lions. I, I didn't, you know, as a kid, uh, animals are always part of my everyday existence, but more domestic animals, you know. So I met a guy, he was coming to me for rehabilitation and uh, he had bought a lion park and it was just like matter of fact, oh, I bought a lion park. I was like, oh, okay. Well, if you want to go and visit it, you know, you're more than welcome. So I was like, yeah, that sounds intriguing. You know, I hadn't known of the, of the lion park because it had been a kind of like a go-to place for tourists since the 60s. And so um, I, I went there and uh, got shown around and then uh, ultimately um, ended up at this, this area, um, off-limits area, where these two lion cubs were. And they were six months old. And they, I was like, well, why are these guys here? And they were like, no, they've just come off public display. And now they're at this area where the public can't interact with them anymore. And those two lions became town Napoleon, became my, bro my brother lions, as many people who follow me would know, you know. And I had no idea um, the impact that these animals would have on my life. If you had have asked me the day before, would you know the meeting of these two lion cubs would you see yourself 20 odd years later talking to graham <laughs> about your life working with lions i would have said are you a bit uh yeah. you know in the head and yeah and that that's that's what happened and I, I i got so entrenched and so involved because the guy basically said to me listen you can see it's had a profound impact go and visit as much as you want and so I took, up, I took him up on that opportunity and I went to visit these lines every single day. The connection, you know, we talked about it today. And, and slowly but surely these lines got bigger and bigger and months and months went by and other lines came into the equation. And uh, before I knew it, I was spending more time at that park than doing anything else. How did you find out what they were doing with the lions? You used to hear murmurings of the dark underbelly of this lion business and you used to think, not this place, not this place. This is the place where town Napoleon live, and this is, a, this is good. Slowly but surely you start to see things that you, you're not happy with, uh, but you, you bite your lip. Um, and then ultimately as the, the, the months and years tick by, you start to see things that you really uh, can't digest. I think the final straw for me was when Meg and Amy, who you met today, got sold from under my nose. I went away on holiday, I came back. Meggy, Amy, nothing. Um, you saw them today, they come, that was always the norm. Come to the enclosure, call Meggy, Amy, and they would be there. And so take me through that whole story and how you called that one of the defining moments of your life. Definitely a defining moment. I, um, I came back, they were gone, I kicked up a huge fuss. Uh, I could not let this go. I, obviously, I had choices, like we all do in life. And uh, the choices were um, do nothing, accept and carry on, or get them back. And, and so off, off I went to, I mean, it, it, the long story is the guy who took the lions brought them back. Or what he thought was the lions. Correct. And I looked at these lions and I said, it's not Megan Amy. And I think 
there was the start of the shock of, well, how do you know? How do you know which two lines they are? You know, and I said to him, they're not Megan Amy. And uh, eventually, after much arguing, it was uh, decided that I would go and get them. And so off I went with a colleague of mine, <laughs> all the way to this area, two and a half hours away, and you know, rocked up at this guy's farm. And that was the first time I saw the real um, effects of the industry. What did you see? Just a systematically um, set out business whereby very cleanly and neatly thought out, enclosure after enclosure after enclosure, all different age group animals. You know, I'll never forget it. I was led through this passage, and on either side, these lions were, you know, not just ones and twos. It was just lions, so numbers of 20s and 15s. And I mean, I subsequently found out that this, lion, this park had over 450 lions. And I think to myself, I've got 25 currently, and it's a full-time job looking after these animals properly. How do you look after 450-plus lions properly? Anyway, um, get to Megan Amy's enclosure, uh, where he says they are. And there's just a sea of lions in this barren enclosure with like this structure that is not enough shade to give to all the animals. So some of them are lying in the baking hot sun. And... Uh, He's like, yeah, well, here we are, we're your lions. And I called Maggie, Amy, and out of this sea of lions, because none of them, none, none of the other lions knew my voice. Two lions, like, oh my gosh, he's back. And they came running at, at pace to the fence, talking and, you know, <laughs> the, the usual, you back, you back, you know, and I was like, that's Meg and that's Amy. And he was like, he was, I, th I think, visibly shocked by, there's something going on here, you know what I'm saying? It's more, and, and I suppose the next question then was, how do you get these lines home? Because we didn't come prepared with uh, darting equipment to drug them. So it was really a question of, I often joke about it and say, if people call me the line whisperer, but if at any point in my career I needed to put line whispering skills to, to the test, it was then. Because mm -hmm. I kind of looked at Megan and, and, and Amy and said, you better get in that box. Because if you don't get in that box, probably all likelihood you're going to be left here. Opened <laughs> the gate, opened the crate, and in went Meg, closed the crate, put it on the back, looked at Amy, your turn, opened the, she got in, closed it, put them on the back. No small talk, off, off we raced back home. Because they trusted you. There was a trust. I mean, there was definitely. But if I could tell you, Graham, the condition that they were in, in two weeks, compared to when I'd left, it was horrendous. You know, driving back, it was when, it, you know, after that adrenaline rush, you kind of like start to um, relax and the mind starts to go, what just happened? And I think, you know, the big realization driving back, I was speaking to my colleague, I was like, I don't own the animals I have relationships with. That's the first problem. There's no ownership. It's I've got relationships, but there's a big difference. Because you can't then control how they're cared for. 100%. If you, don't, if you don't own, you don't control. So what's to stop this from happening again? I realized that um, you know, ownership was a necessity. I didn't have the mechanisms or the means. So what, what, what were you going to do? You know, so that, that was the issue. So how did you go about starting your own sanctuary? 
Well, it was always in the back of my mind that I wanted to um, take control and try and start something of my own. Um, and so that process got um, a step in the right direction um, because there was this feature film that um, he was wanting to make. And I was the guy to make that film. And I had a deal whereby I said, well, if I do this film, I will um, firstly, I'll do it, no problem. But I want co-ownership of the animals. And that was a condition. And so that was granted. And uh, so I produced the film. And I, I worked with the animals in the film. And uh, that was a step in the, in the right direction. And we moved all the animals away from the, the park where it was at to another facility. Um, which was kind of purpose-built for the, 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 this film. And so I thought, okay, great. We, this is the realization of my dream, is because now I have co-ownership, we have this new property, there's more control. We're sailing. It's just, I'm starting to get happy about this. And then, and then wapow, it was this association of, of this facility always with the old. And so often people would say to me, but Kevin, how could you speak against an industry knowing full well that that's what's going on? And I was like, you're right. You're, you're absolutely right. And so it was another step to how do we um, either extricate ourselves out of that or get them to stop. And so there were many conversations about stopping. But I think ultimately, when, when it is a business and there are shareholders saying, listen, pal, you stop this, this is going to be the death of the business. It doesn't happen. So how did you get from that place to where the sanctuary is at now? So through um, kind of getting to a point where we knew it was unsalvageable. It was a, then a question of, of, of trying to find people to help um, me in moving. And, and that, that resulted in finding people who were willing to um, offer up their property, offer up the land, and make that progression, make that, that kind of leap of faith. And the animals that you have at the facility um, are largely ones that you first developed relationships with at the Lion Park. Correct. Yeah. And obviously, um, uh, you know, um, a lot of people say to me, oh, but you didn't take all the animals with you. Um, yeah, because if I took every animal with me, they would have no animals themselves. So it was really a difficult time in my life because it was like I had relationships with a lot of animals <laughs> you know every animal that was coming through the ranks there i was forming bonds with because i kind of saw it as like well you know i can't raise an animal and then not have a relationship with it how do you do that you know it's like having this pet dog and then when it gets to four you give it away and um, when i left i mean with the animals that i had in my care at that point in time there were some animals that i had to sever bonds with at the at the previous park. So I want to take you back to when you were growing up. You had an older brother, two older sisters. What was it like being the youngest of four? Yeah, it was. Uh, you kind of, I suppose, raise yourself in a in a you know in a sense. You know, my mother uh, worked when from a young age, and my dad also uh, was working. So I think uh, largely my brothers and sisters brought me up. And I ran amok because I had a lot of, um, well, uh, lack of control <laughs> over what my, my, my ongoings were, you know. So. How little money did your family have growing up? 
Well, it's an interesting one because I was saying to somebody the other day, and this is perspective, isn't it? You know, I grew up in a poor um, household. And he said to me, did you have a car in your family? And I went, yeah, we did have a car. Um, did you have a roof over your head? And I said, yeah, we did have a roof. Did you have running water? Uh, yeah, you weren't poor. And I, and I, I, I sat back and I was like, you're right. I wasn't poor, we weren't poor compared to the rest of uh, society. So I've refreshed that view. You know, I, wa I, was, I was privileged in that sense in that I actually grew up with all those amenities, but we didn't have disposable income. I mean, it wasn't like we could just go on overseas holidays or holidays. In fact, as a family, we only went on one um, holiday together as a family. Your family didn't have a TV till you were eight years old. Uh, how do you <laughs> think that impacted you? Well, it was quite funny because we used to sit watching the test pattern when TV eventually came for when the broadcast would come for that limited time. You know, and I think to now when our kids, it's just everything's just so instantaneous, you know, with TV on your phone, basically, you know. So it does impact you in the sense positively because we were more creative. We had to go. I love being outdoors. So whenever, you know, the rest of the family was indoors reading or playing or whatever, I was out in the garden uh, digging in the, the dirt, uh, digging up earthworms, collecting crickets, butterflies, birds, climbing trees. That was my gig. How true is it that a doctor told your mom you should learn how to sew? Very true. No, well, she said, the doctor actually said you should buy a sewing machine uh, because that was my lot in life. Just anything that could cut me and cut me deep, I would be attracted to it somehow. Um, so whether it was at school or um, simply just playing with the other kids uh, tug of war with a piece of thatch grass and lo and behold, zook, the thatch gets, you know, pulled through my thumb and I still hold the scar and wah, off to the doctor, you know, whatever, 10, 15 stitches. Uh, kicking a ball, I kick a pine cone and it goes, Thing goes right through my shoe it was just bad luck I, I put it down to you know or playing with my brothers and sisters and uh, I, I go through the coffee table and it so happens to be glass and cut my backside up so yeah it was true uh, explain the toe ah my toe yeah so I'm missing a, a, a toe the, well, the end piece of my my second toe my right foot uh, I was about three three and a half four years of age and as, as usual, the Richardsons were left to their own devices and we were playing at our, our next door neighbor's house and I was too sh small to reach the pedals of the bicycle. So I was like, normally we were always barefoot, sitting on the back of the bicycle and the guys were pushing, you know, pushing the bicycle and you'd kind of go around with the bicycle. And one of the other boys pushed a wagon into the bicycle, the bicycle toppled over and my toe, how it got caught, got caught between the the chain and the sprocket, and basically cut it off. Um, but it was attached by a little piece of flesh, and uh, everyone got such a fright, and the boys pulled me away. And that, instead of reversing the chain, pulled my toe off. And so <laughs> the toe was like, I, I, with all the nerve endings and the muscle twitching, was bouncing around like a, one of those, um, those uh, bouncing beans, you know, those <laughs> that you used to get as a kid. And the other kid thought it would be a good idea to bury it. So he smacked it with a spade and, and then 
dug a hole and buried it, buried the toe. And so there I was, four years old, bleeding out, and they kind of like patched it up with a dirty rag and took me across the road to my neighbor's house, across the road, and um, got their father to take me to the hospital. And what did they do with the toe? Well, the, the doctors there, this is all relayed to me because I was too small, but the doctors asked for where's the toe because they could probably stitch it back. So they called back, got the toe, dug it up, put it in a jar and brought it to the hospital. And the doctor looked at it and said, well, not going to happen. We kind of thought you may have put it on ice or something, you know? Right. So no toe. How well do you remember rearing a baby bird with your dad? Very well. No, that kick-started my, my kind of passion for, for that, uh, for, for the wildlife. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, in the neighborhood, there were thunderstorms like we're having now, and uh, they were regular. And so baby birds were forever being um, flung out of nests. And, you know, um, the one particular occasion, it was uh, my dad uh, got, got uh, given this baby bird. And I, you know, was fascinated by feeding it and nurturing it until the point where it was big enough to, to uh, actually let go. So that, that stuck with me. How did you get the nickname Birdman of Orange Grove? Well, the Birdman of Orange Grove came about because of the Birdman of Alcatraz was that, that movie with the, the guy who raised birds in prison. And, and so with that, uh, as a youngster, any bird that was in the neighborhood that needed uh, rearing would come to our house and I would be the designated bird rearer. So ultimately became known in Orange Grove as the Birdman of Orange Grove and anyone who had a problem would send me their bird. What pets did you have growing up? I think my parents compensated uh, for us not going on holiday by giving us animals to look after. And then I think by the time we then complained about the fact that we never went away. They said, well, you, what are you going to do with all the animals? So we can't go away. So you name it. We had dogs and cats and birds and budgies and pigeons and uh, pheasants and snakes and you name it. We had it. Yeah. Describe what the home life was like initially and how it began worsening. Well, uh, yeah, I think home life, you have different perspectives. I mean, uh, it's a quite funny. I speak to my brother now at, at our older ages and his perspective of childhood is very different to mine. I saw it as being a, a very strained kind of childhood in terms of my parents and the pressures and, 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 and money being, being tight, you know. And, and I suppose the big turning point was my old man uh, kind of lost his job and there was retrenchments at that time in the, in the 80s. And uh, that, that sent him on a bit of a downward spiral. What happened? I think he turned to the bottle and, and I think, you know, I can understand now looking back as to the pressures of life and why. Uh, but I think the drinking got bad where you get into this rut and then you don't get out of it um, or you need at least rehabilitation. Uh, so it was, it was, I think, quite severe at one point in time. You said you were ashamed to admit it, but there was almost a sense of relief when he passed uh, when you were 13. How so? Yeah, look, I mean, I think I wrote about that because it was, um, it was a point where I, I found, I, I thought, okay, it's changed now. 
this um, continual cycle is now been broken. So it was kind of a relief for the family and a kind of a relief, I suppose, for him. So it wasn't happy homes and gardens, let's face it. So why pretend that it was? Uh, so I'm not ashamed to write about it and say, you know, I wouldn't have written about it if I, I wasn't prepared to have it there for, for you know, time in, in memorial, um, because it was a relief. After his passing, uh, things started to change quite a bit in terms of your behavior. <laughs> Look, I mean, again, my, my youth, um, and it seemed like forever, but I mean, actually now when I look, reflect, it was a few years, it was three, four years, uh, where I went, I did, I went off the rails, I started drinking excessively too. Um, and, you know, I, 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 my, my poor mother had a lot on her plate. I mean, she had four kids to still get through school. Um, she had to hold down a job to do that. And uh, there was me not making it easy. Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 you know, would sneak out at night and go drinking with my friends. And um, we would take the car and... Do things, do things like, like, things like How that. How many cars did you steal? Um, well, we didn't steal cars, Graham. We borrowed them. <laughs> no. uh, borrowed them? Yeah, we borrowed them. We borrowed them for the night. You? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so any car that we, we used, we borrowed and put it back um, at the end. Um, or or, or if you could, tell about one. your <laughs> sister's car and what happened. Yeah, my poor sister. She, yeah, uh, we, we took a car one night. Well, we always had our, we had our favorite car that we would uh, take. It was a Mini. And uh, it was easy to push out the driveway. And it was um, easy to, to drive. It was a good, uh, fun car to drive, you know. So we would, that would be the car of, of choice. But my sister was a, a, a nurse or training to be a nurse at least. And so every now and again, she would come home and we had a very narrow driveway and she had saved up a long, long time to buy this really horrible Fiat car. It was like a red brick. Um, no one will really know what it, model it was. It's a Fiat Mira Fiori 131, whatever that means. But anyway, people who know what, what they are will know it's a, it's a real brick. And so one of my mates who, at a very young age, played first team rugby. He was quite a big guy. His job was to push the car out the drive, you know. And uh, so he helped, uh, he helped push the, this car. But my sister had come home for the weekend and parked in the other car. So we had no choice. And so we decided to take that car. And off we went. And, and that night it was raining. And everything was just against, all the odds were against us. And uh, so we, we, uh, we rolled it. And yeah, um, that was the end of the, the joyride. And how about the teddy bear you got your mom for her birthday? <laughs> you really did read my book, eh? <laughs> yes. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I threw up all over it. So brushed it all off and tried to give it to her the next morning. I mean, I'd been drinking the night before and I was pretty pissed and had it all nicely ready to give to her and threw up all over it that night, not knowing what I was doing. And yeah, 
So you date a girl in high school whose family included you on their trips to uh, game reserves and yep. national parks, which I think to some extent reignited your passion in animals when it had started to wane amid some yep. of your troubles. You don't get into vet school, so you end up getting a degree in physiology and anatomy. Explain how personal training then indirectly yeah. got you into the field you're in now. Uh, one thing is that I always say to the youth who kind of look to me for inspiration, I'm, I always say to them, guys, don't close doors because you are so hell-bent on doing this. You never know which door might open to lead you to ultimately fulfill your passion. So, I, so many times I hear of kids going, I'm not doing that because I want to be this. And I'm like, if you did that, you might get to that or something else. You need to be more open-minded. And it certainly was the case with me because I was very adamant that this was a certain direction I wanted to head in. But it was ultimately through the private training that got me to work with lions, you know. But going back to the girl that I met, her father um, was a very well-respected and well-known martial artist, um, Stan Schmidt. And, and uh, I knew who he was. First strong figure you had in your life post dad's passing. Correct. First strong figure. And he was, I was terrified of him. I was 16 when I met his daughter. I mean, she was 15. And I was terrified of this guy. I mean, I, I knew who he was from the neighborhood. He, he uh, had a dojo in Orange Grove. So Stan Schmidt dojo, you knew. Uh, Stan Schmidt was the, the dude. And so I met his daughter. I mean, I actually thought it was a joke when she said my dad Stan, is Stan Schmidt. It was like, okay, that's, that's your, um, your, your uh, opportunity to run. <laughs> but um, their family really, uh, I'm still, you know, Stan passed actually recently. Um, you know, and and their, the family was really good to me. Stan was my mentor. He really uh, got me back on in a nice way. So not the guy that was so terrifying. We would have these philosophical conversations at night. He'd come home from training and we'd sit in the lounge and we'd have these debates and he'd talk to me about my passions. And so slowly but surely kind of that, that passion for, for the animals reignited, you know, and the trips to the bush and, you know, you realize, oh, this is actually what makes me tick. And so I went and did my degree and uh, didn't get into vet school, but you know, I don't, I'm not upset by that. My brother's a vet, and he often says to me, Kev, you know, you are the one that has the bonds and relationships with the animals, and he's the one that the animals hate because he, you know, he's having to always work on them, you know. So, so you get into personal training, and yeah, well, uh, the, the, the Schmidt family was uh, big into uh, health. And, and training and obviously stand with the karate. And so I became part of that old clique and I was training and getting healthy and, uh, and fit. And then I started just doing one or two clients and I was doing my degree and doing clients. And, and slow, slowly but surely as I didn't get into veterinary, um, I started to see an opportunity in, in, in uh, you know, working with people and started to think, well, I really enjoyed the rehabilitation of people. I uh, worked quite closely with an orthopedic surgeon. He had sent people with shoulder issues and basically, you know, strengthened them up before operations 
and then after operations. So the, the rehabilitation would be a lot quicker, and I enjoyed that. It was quite, quite um, rewarding. And you met somebody then... Uh, you introduced you, me to lions. Right. Exactly. So it's all connected. Right. Yeah. So when talking about dealing with animals, explain the differences you see it between the hair raising on the back of your neck and adrenaline. Yeah, look, I mean, adrenaline, I suppose, when I'm out in the bush with a lion and uh, we are looking at something or going um, chasing or walking, or there's that adrenaline. It's a, it's a I suppose, kind of likened to an, an athlete before a race or before a MotoGP or something like that, you know. When you ask them, are, are you, is this fear? Are you fearful of riding your motorcycle? Well, I think they're professional in what they're doing. So it's not a, no, I don't, I'm not fearful of riding motorbikes. I know I'm good at riding motorbikes. But there is this anticipation, I suppose, of this, you know, build up. And then once it's over, uh, I suppose once the race goes on, then that dissipates, you know. Um, that's different to the hair on your neck standing on end and your gut saying, this is wrong. What are rules you've broken in terms of animal interaction? Yeah, well, when I started working with the lions, uh, a lot of the people would say to me, Kevin, you, you need to stop doing certain things. And I, I'm like, well, what? Well, you shouldn't really be sitting down with them like you do because they can see you as being potential prey. All these theories and myths uh, about the behavior. You shouldn't look them in the eyes. And I was like, why not? They look at each other in the eyes and they don't see each other as threats. And you start to understand that these myths have come about because people have seen a lion do something and then they've, they've, they've come up with this myth that that's what lions do. If I stare at a male lion who's got some meat in his possession, that's a threat. Just as if I stared at you at a bar um, and you had a girl next to you who you were going out with and I like leaned in and gave you this mean look, you would see that as a threat. Eye contact's good, but staring's bad, you know, in that context. Or if I stare at a lion in the same vein who's got a girl, she's an estrus, and he's protective over her, and I'm staring at him. I mean, well, hello. If you truly had a, a, a good bond and a relationship with an animal, why can't you do with that animal what it does with another lion in its pride? Elaborate, if you could, how, on how you believe your gift is knowing how far and when to push the boundaries? Yeah, look, I, I often say to people the, 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 the skill set, I suppose, in working with animals is not so much uh, knowing when to work with an animal when the animal's willing. It's more in when knowing when not to interact with the animal. I think that's the skill. I can see that she's not happy. Yeah, push the boundary. Go and do it again. <laughs> you know, and then see what she does. Uh, I know because I used to do that when I was 23, 24, learning about lioness and lion's behavior. That meant nothing to me. So when she did that, I would touch her foot again and then she would go, uh, oh, okay, that means that. It's a behavior, uh, behavior. We all, we all in tune with it, Graham. I mean, I, 
I often say to people, um, humans have just managed to desensitize their um, abilities to interact with animals. We see ourselves as a part from a, a part from a, the animal kingdom instead of being a part of the animal kingdom. We are part of it. We're not a, a part from it. And, and why do you believe people can't interact with animals in the way you do, in some cases because they come into it with um, almost, I guess, an agenda? Yeah, well, I think that is the problem, is that we, uh, we've been so uh, long apart from animals that we have this human arrogance, I suppose, where we think we can just come in I see it all the time with people and their dogs. Uh, so there's a dog, I'm a human, I come in, it's my right to pat you on the head. So you, you come in, hi oh boy, all doing this like, you know, big um, domineering kind of attitude and then doof, doof, doof on his head. And he's like looking at you like, who the hell are you? Um, as opposed to being less forceful and coming up to that animal and, and going down to its level and, and, and putting your hand out and being submissive in your approach. Less forceful. And the animal's like, welcome. That's nice. So I think it's that kind of like, we just are living this world that's so fast paced and we just want everything instantaneously. It's this instant gratification. So we kind of expect that with animals too. And the animal must do what I want now. Why no gun, no stick? No pepper spray? Uh, nowadays, I have to carry pepper spray because of uh, insurance. Uh, but, I, I, you know, when I was younger, I didn't. And because I felt no gun, no stick, because I feel um, that I need to be able to deal with the animal on its terms. I also believe that crutches um, can, you know, put you in situations that you wouldn't typically put yourself in. If, if you didn't have that crutch. How do critics view you? Oh, gosh, critics. Um, is there a mute button for critics? <laughs> no, uh, look. Let's, let's hear it. <laughs> I, I have my fair share. I mean, within, un, un, unfortunately, um, within uh, when you do something like this and you work with the animals, you're always going to have people with strong opinions. Um, I've found that with the invent of social media, it's never before have we got so many people with so many opinions. Maybe there always were those people, but they never had a way of ventilating them. Now they've got a way of ventilating them. A lot of them anonymously. I have no problem having a debate with you face to face or even on a phone or whatever, but don't go and draw a conclusion about my life without having walked a mile in my, my shoes. I don't do that with you. So don't come and criticize me for what I do without having even understood what I do. I would say 90% of the people that I come across my work um, I've positively influenced and they have positive um, out of it. And they've been enlightened to canned hunting and the plight of lion and they've been educated. But you can't paint everyone with the same brush. And this is my point. Um, and I have people who say, oh, well, I'm an animal exploiter and an, I'm an animal abuser because I run a YouTube channel and I'm making content, you can create revenue from YouTube. Therefore, I'm using animals to generate revenue. And I'm like, well, the animals don't feed themselves and the money doesn't just fall from the sky. So I'll tell you what, I'll stop YouTube. You write me a check every month. 
to feed the animals. Isn't it? You see, that's my point of judging. It's easy to judge somebody in isolation. Um, and I've done it in the past too. I mean, we've had conversations about people just in our short span and we've got judgment almost. And I, I have to reel myself back and say, Kevin, you've been judgmental. You don't even know the guy or the girl. You know what I'm saying? So I, I, that's maturely speaking to at this point in my life, I, I, I really take that with a pinch of salt because I know the direction I'm heading and I know the good that I'm doing. And I know that from the people who have written to us and said, you know, my, my husband came back from war with PTSD, okay? Your videos of Megan and Amy have got him through it. Wow. How cool is that? How cool is that? It's not only, it doesn't always have to have this conservation value, you know, to see the good that you're doing. And this is what I'm trying to say to these narrow-minded um, conservationists, is that conservation is multifaceted and it's very complicated. But if I can lead somebody to loving lions through a video that I've done, and there's no harm in doing it in that respect, then, then shut up. Explain how your job was once figuring out the gender of hyenas. <laughs> yeah, we were all confused. Eh? I mean, so the first hyenas arrived at the park and, oh my gosh, hyenas. I don't like hyenas. I had, I'd been Lion king too. And uh, I just saw them as these horrible, smelly, rotten scoundrels. And their whole um, reason for being put on this planet was to give lions a hard time. But then these two arrived at the park and I started to think, wait, there's a lot more going on in that head than meets the eye. And I was fascinated by them. And I was fascinated by their quirky kind of movements and they, they, they kind of schizophrenic. You know, the hyena would come up to you and then he would go, and then run away. <laughs> it was like, dude, what's the matter with you? Are you, are you on drugs, you know? That's how they are. They're like so, as babies, they're like so, so weird. And I, I just started reading books on them and, and, and really got really interested. And then I started to go like, what? These animals have a, have a penis. The females have a penis. No, I have to see this for my own eyes, you know? <laughs> so we start, we start trying to figure out if the two hyenas we have are actually a boy and a girl, two boys or two girls. Oh my gosh, then everyone's an expert and we start no, but they've, they've got testes, they've got nuts. And then it's like, yeah, but so do the girls. So you read up and you look at pictures in these books. And then you see that, geez, today, the, the female does have a penis and the penis is erectile. Not only is it a big penis, and I, I often, <laughs> I mean, it would make most men cry. <laughs> in fact, it, I mean, it makes lions, in fact, we often have this joke as to why hyenas are always laughing. And it's because when, when they're so well endowed and they're looking at the lions who have these tiny little penis, they <laughs> in the bush, it's a joke. Anyway, but it's quite funny. I, I at least think so. <laughs> Glad you're laughing. <laughs> the crew isn't, no. Um, they've been told to keep quiet. So um, lo and behold, we start looking at these hyenas and we start scratching them under their hind legs to get them to get these erectile penises. And we kind of abusing the <laughs> animals, <laughs> guilty, um, to, to, to see what sex they are. 
and lo and behold we think they are one's a male one's a female and blah 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 but ultimately it turned out that they were both males and the only time I, I realized um, how wrong I had had it is when finally the park got a female and it was just the park had a run of bad luck in terms of getting males and there was just male hyenas everywhere and then one day a female came and I could see the difference it's very subtle but I could see the difference in the shape of the penis uh, the glans penis what was involved with helping the hyenas pee in the lion's poop oh when when they're young well I mean when they're young uh, you have to uh, help them defecate and so rubbing their bums is part and parcel of a mom's job um, and it's uh, you need they, they don't have bowel movement so in the wild uh, or, or in, even with a mother the mother will lick the bum and and they'll urinate and and then the urine is warm and and it causes the stimulus and then they will defecate and if you don't do that they just they get they bung up um, and then you've got big problems. And that's your job? Was my job. Back in the day. Mom's not, there. not anymore. <laughs> not, <laughs> not anymore. anymore. No, no, no. That's why. No, no babies anymore. So no problem there. We've, we've outgrown that. A few of the notable interactions you've had with lions over the years that people would see on your Instagram or YouTube channel. How about the first time one jumped on your back? Your heart's racing. What do you remember? Yeah, I mean, look, so jumping is an interesting thing because if you are uh, anticipating the jump, like, for example, like a Megan Amy would, when they were young, always jump. Now that they're older, if they jump on me, I'm like, wow, you really are um, excited to see me today. But it's a controlled jump. But then other lions like Gabby would be um, out of the blue. She'll just come at you full force and jump on you and knock you flat and and then you know kind of roll and rough and tumble with you and then get up and run away <laughs> you know so the first time that happens without you um knowing what's happening it's like what's happening you know but you soon realize that this is you if you look at gabby and you understand how she she does that to bobcat and she does that to, you know um and it's normally the males that are, are more well are more composed you know females are normally quite up and down and running about so yeah i think it does get your adrenaline going but you soon learn that there's nothing meant by it it's just play tell about the first time one came to you in the water oh wow yeah i'll never forget uh, we were taking uh out with meg and amy and i was just curious it was just curiosity i was like i wonder what would happen i walk into the dam because the thinking is lions do not like water. They generally don't, you know. Uh, lions in the Okavango and the Delta or in, in areas where water is part and parcel of them having to hunt and go through, they tolerate it. But they're not like tigers. They don't actively go and sit in the water and wallow and cool off, you know. Um, so it was really interesting when Meg came. Once when a lioness uh, didn't want you to come near her cubs. Why make the decision to crawl away on all fours versus stand up and walk away? It's the threat. Um, when you walk on your all fours, you are lower, less of a threat. And, and if, if a lion is telling you off, 
um, it's it's a good way to show submission. Um, they do respond to being to submission. What were you doing when you were trying to get Maditao to stop attacking a newborn cub, and what happened? Yeah, what happened was uh, Tabby had uh, her sister had had some cubs, and Tabby was never a good mother. Tabby was Megan Amy's mother, and that was uh, she was disastrous. So uh, Maditao had had some cubs, and Maditao was always a good mother, always good looking after them. And uh, what had happened on a particular day is that uh, one of Tabby's cubs had gotten amongst them. And Maditao's, uh, you know, they were pretty big cubs, were rough and tumbling, this little, you know, this youngster. And I got there just in time to hear this thing squealing and it had been lacerated and it was bleeding and they were really playing rough with it, you know. So I thought, I thought nothing of it. I thought I will just go in there and I'll just pick up this cub and I'll take it back and that'll be that. Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, I got there and, and Madita thought that I was doing something to hurt her cubs. So she came at me. I mean, she charged. charged. Yeah, she came at me not once, like three times. And the last time I thought, this is, this is it. What are you thinking as she's charging at you and you think this could be it well your natural instinct is to run um, but every uh, every bone in your body says run uh, but your mind says stupid because as soon as you run even though it's a line you know very very well it could trigger her instinct to just pursue you you know so your best bet is to just hold ground and make a noise or really tell her you know tell her off and so yeah, that's what you do. And the cub? Uh, I went and got my car <laughs> and I then drove back in and uh, drove over it. Not over it, but over it with the car and then grabbed the, the little one and put it back with, with Tabby. I, I wanted to talk to you about injuries. Take me through what happened where you're feeling unspoken pressure from your nearby family <laughs> and you go in to be with the lion. Back in the day, I always felt this pressure to perform. So, you know, uh, it was kind of like everyone would come to the park and oh, there's Kevin and he's going to go and perform like a monkey and, and you're all going to see these lions and he's going to, you know, there's the teeth and there's the claws and what what you know. And I, I, this lion had come to the park and he had been declawed. And his name was Savo, after the man-eaters of Savo. Uh, really a stupid name to name a lion. Um, and so I felt sorry for him. Um, that was the real reason for me trying to connect with him. And so connected with him over, over weeks, um, started scratching him through the fence and he enjoyed it. Started going in with him, patting him and he was he was okay. He used to roll on his back, and that was, you know, there was a sign, and that was cool. And but there was something about him that some days he would just sit there at the back and look at you, and it would make my gut feel uneasy. And so I had this uh, thumb rule that if Sava didn't come up, I would not go in. That was my thumb rule. And uh, on this particular day, it was my nephew's eighth birthday party and the whole family had come to the park. 
in a, on an outing and they were wanting to see Uncle Kevin with the cheetah and Uncle Kevin with the hyena and Uncle Kevin with Tau Napoleon. And then it was Uncle Kevin, can you go in with that line? Savo was next door to Tau Napoleon. I looked at the situation and I went, yeah, I can go in with that line, he's my mate. And they all looked at me as if to say, we'll go in with him then, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I was uh, like, oh, do I have to? And then uh, I felt the pressure. And I, uh, yeah, okay, I'm gonna go in with him. And I went to the gate and I was like, Savo, come boy. And he looked at me with that look. And my gut said, don't go, don't do it. And I looked back and the, you know, all the kids were sitting there going, go, go. And, and so I was caught. And so I went in and I felt uneasy and I like walked to the side and up the side of the enclosure and and then he was just waiting. It was like, like tapping, you can see him like in the movies. And once I got to a point where he knew I couldn't get out, then he came running, eh, charging. And he, there was nothing I could do, I couldn't get out. And so he reared up and smacked me with a shot of the paw on my nose, which caused an instant like nosebleed. Also stunned me because I don't remember from there go, going to the middle of the enclosure. So he dragged me from the fence to the middle of the enclosure. And your family initially My, is thinking this is a joke. part of the game. They think it's a joke. I think it's part of the action. My brother-in-law, in fact, is saying to everyone, calm down, it's, it's normal. This is what he does. It's part of the gig. And I'm, you know, I kind of come to in the middle of the enclosure and he had actually um, hooked me with my belt. You saw how strong they are. I mean, he picked me up and dra had, uh, dragged me to the middle of the enclosure, but my belt had actually severed and, and tore, leather belt, um, which became my nephew's like, uh, gift. Almost he had had it in his room for many years to come. But um, at that point, then I think my brother-in-law then realized that this wasn't a joke and this wasn't um, part of the, the act and that Sava was actually serious. And so luckily um, one of the other colleagues who worked with me came banging sticks and uh, that was a distraction. And so Sava, he came into the enclosure and Sava uh, looked at him and, and then went, okay, I'm going to go and have a go at you which allowed me to get up and get out. Uh, not, you know, after, b before he had, he had bitten me on my arm and he had bitten me on my, my leg here and on my calf and he had tried to bite me here, but it got my, my belt and my, my shirt. Did you think you were gonna die? You don't have time to think that, you just have time to um, react in the way that you would react in a situation like that. You don't, you don't have time to, um, break it down and think oh my gosh this is it or it's just you just do yeah one of the lines you were closest to thor um take me through the attack during filming yeah i mean this is the learning your lessons about pushing um and pressure you know during the the filming of that feature film it was uh, a lot of pressure on my shoulders to um make things happen uh you got crew and you got a lot of people 
have paid a lot of money and the, 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 the money dial was turning. Right. And so um, at that particular point, we were really missing one component to a scene. So now there's Thor, the most amazing lion, and he's not wanting to fight this animatronic fake cat who quite clearly he sees as fake. And he says, there's no intention for me to pretend to fight this animal. The pressure is, is that we've got the other half of the fight because the white animatronic lion and the brown lion fought it like it was a real lion. And so now we've got the missing, the, the, the hero of the film. This is Litsatsi, uh, the white lion in the film. Is not, he's not been a hero. So my job is to make him a hero. And I'm going up to him and I'm like, come on boy, fight the lion. And he's going, Arr. and I'm like, come on, you can do it. You know, and he's continually telling me, piss off. And so, you know, again, you push, 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 push. And eventually he snaps and he, he just, he just like, as, as quick as they can move, grabs my arm. And, and pushes me, like from here at least to the door, just grabs me and pushes me up against the fence. Oh, the crew was shooting <laughs> through these hatches and, and they're all like standing there in consternation and, and he's got his arm in my, my arm in his mouth and he's, he looks at me, I'll never forget the look, and he's like, <coughs> like spits my arm out and goes, okay, enough. You know, and it goes back to eating the meat that was at the, the foot of this animatronic line. And it was, again, it was a really life lesson, kind of a turning point. Yeah. Why did it make you feel ashamed? Because I pushed the boundary so much to make people happy. I was like, why would I ruin a relationship over that? The one that's taken so long to nurture. And I, I, it took me a long time to regain his trust. When I told people I was interviewing you, um, a kind of consistent question they had, and there's no like delicate way to, to put it, you know, you look at the crocodile hunter, you look at grizzly man, um, they're dead. Um, <laughs> what, what, I guess the question is, why do you think it's different for you. Okay, so let me uh, counter that with just saying a few things. One is like, you know how many um, uh, free mountain climbers are dead? Lots. Oh, yeah. So uh, what oh, makes oh, so what makes oh, Alex Hanold think he's different? Significant people in the industry say, you know, if he continues doing it, most likely it ends not well. Okay, so then. The next one I will say is you've interviewed Lewis Hamilton and we know how many Formula One drivers have uh, passed away of, uh, you know, over the years. What makes him think that he's special, you know? Uh, and don't answer that <laughs> because it's just, a, it's just a question that any person who does something extreme, um, you're always going to get the normal person looking at them as if they're nuts. And they're going to go like, yeah, but Formula One drivers are nuts. MotoGP riders are nuts. Alex Hanolds are nuts. Kevin Richardson is nuts. And we don't look at it like that. So Steve Irwin, 
didn't get killed by a crocodile. He got killed by a bloody stingray. In the last hundred years, maybe two or three people have died from stingrays. People swim with stingrays all the time. It was just bad luck. More people die um, from dogs per annum. More people die from being killed by cows per annum, from horses, horse riding. Would you not ride horses because people have been died from horses? It, it's a great possibility you could die riding a horse. We can even extrapolate it to driving in cars. You should be terrified getting into your car driving to uh, the airport because your chances of dying in it are very, very high. Um, so we've been conditioned to believe that cars are okay because they are necessary evil. Whereas we don't think it's okay to do what I do because we feel it's not totally necessary. You see what I'm saying? So the, um, the bear guy, uh, um, Timothy Treadwell, he had no relationship with these bears. These bears were wild bears. And you were pushing, the fact that he did it for 12 seasons or something like that was incredible, actually. It's a mean, no mean feat. Um, but they weren't his Chinas. These were bears coming out of hibernation, cranky, grumpy, and hungry. So if you analyze anything, I mean, there's always an explanation. I mean, uh, the lions today don't just, they're not going to just snap. Um, and I suppose my wife understands that she would be the first one to say to me, you've got two kids, why are you doing this, you know? But she also would be the first one to understand that if you told me to stop, um, it would be like you cut a piece of my heart out because of what I do for them and what they get from it. So as I said to you, the evolution is not so much about me getting a kick out of working with lions. It's about them getting a kick of what I provide for them um, on a daily, weekly, monthly, whatever basis. And so. maybe it's in part because of the elementary basic premise of the question, but I'm sure it's one you've gotten you know, many times before. Does that question bother you? Which one? The, yeah. When am I going to die? Yeah, right. Well, are we all going to die at some point in time? So, you know, I'd rather die living than die not living because I would die if you took my life away from me in that sense you know so um, I just see it so much with people they're living empty unfulfilled lives um, because they're too scared to live um, the mauling uh, sensitive topic I've already been told you can't get into specific yeah. details so I'll, I'll tread lightly um, but in 2018 a young lady was killed at your sanctuary. How did that affect you personally? Yeah, well, yeah, to this day, I mean, you affected. Um, nothing um, prepares you. So, it, it, you know, you talk to people um, about it, uh, it, they don't understand. Um, it's, it, it's a difficult one. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not something I suppose it's something I've uh, had to dealt deal with internally. It's a, a topic I find very hard to talk about, so I find it just easier to internalize it. Um, and that, that's my way of dealing with it and healing. Um, it takes time, and it's still very raw for everyone. What do you say to the staff after something like that happens? 
you've you've just got to take stock and and uh, deal with everyone um, and let everyone deal with trauma. It's it's traumatic. And again, treading lightly here, what's the process been like for you of going through that? Well, I mean, you need to reassess everything, obviously, and that's what I've had to do, and 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 think long and hard about what your impact is and what you would like to continue to do. So, you you know, I'm here talking to you. Um, so there's still um, things to do. Uh, and I think that's important in, in my work with, with these animals. Um, last question on the topic, like what do you think you learned from going through a situation like that? I think we can uh, understand from life, life is fragile. I mean, that's, that's uh, one thing that's very, um, I still think about a lot, is life is fragile and you need to embrace life. You, 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 you have a choice um, when you wake up in the morning. You can sit there and choose to be um, miserable or you can choose to be uh, happy and you can, you can uh, be thankful or you can be negative. You can be positive or you can be negative. And I think positivity can breed positivity. Uh, the foundation. Yeah. Um, you started in 2018. Um, why decide to start it? Uh, the foundation uh, got um, basically recognized in 2018, but it's not, I, I started thinking about starting a foundation when we moved to Valgedacht. And I was part of a, uh, it was a, it was a non-profit. It was called uh, um, Protecting African uh, Wildlife Conservation Trust. And so I always thought it would really be good to um, have your own kind of um, organization that you could control the thinking. And, and, and you know, often I, I've had people contact me saying, we want to help, but we don't know who to go to and where to go. So I wanted to start this um, entity that could help people and channel funding to, to the causes that needed the, the funding. So basically, in, uh, I got the opportunity to take over this nonprofit already in existence. And so we had taken it over before 2018, but we launched in 2018 and uh, really been well received, um, which is great. Uh, so a lot of people out there have, have uh, said, great, we've you've been wanting something like this to happen. And we, we launched our Land for Lions campaign uh, off the bat and uh, to try and um, secure the land that we're on. What are your goals with it? Well, there's the, the foundation has many goals, uh, one of uh, which is to uh, try and bring an end to canned hunting. Right. Um, the other is to um, buy up and protect and preserve habitat. So you need to uh, keep animals from people and people from animals in order to protect them. Um, you look at all the areas in the United States, you look in Europe, these protected areas like Yellowstone um, are not uh, boundaryless. You know, these areas are very defined areas. Um, and in South Africa, we can do that. We can, build, we can uh, buy a habitat and own it in these uh, in different entities in the foundation and, uh, and then start to uh, protect it that way.
Your wife says you're rebel conservationists. Uh, how so? Uh, rebel conservation in the sense that we uh, don't just look at things at face value and accept it. So if somebody says to us that um, ban trophy hunting, for example, you know, it's very easy to just jump on that bandwagon and say, yeah, ban it because we don't like it. So the organization is very um, happy to entertain that if it has a conservation value. In the bigger picture, we are prepared to put our own personal opinions and differences aside for the um, greater good. There's something Mandy, your wife, stressed the other day with me on the phone, that a new way of thinking is needed. Absolutely, because if you continue down the same path, that your, your opening question was, um, where do our, you know, our lions going to go extinct? Well, yeah, in certain areas for sure. I mean, if that's the, the constant mentality, there needs to be a radical rethinking of how one goes about it. And, and so that's, that's what we mean by that. Yeah. You've you built this amazing sanctuary. You have a, a boy and a girl. Um, what's the likelihood one day you see them taking over or having involvement? And uh, not a huge likelihood because I see the sanctuary as something winding down. Um, so I wouldn't want them to get involved in a, a an, an entity that's um, actually, um, you know, in the in the final stages of of its existence. You know, my son and my daughter must go and pursue their own aspirations and dreams, and I will gladly have them involved in uh, nature, but not in that uh, way. And if the sanctuary is winding down, what do you see as the next iteration of your work? Well, definitely the foundation is something that one focuses, the focus is shifted toward. So um, I do see the foundation as being something that it would be ongoing because that is an ongoing mission. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Pleasure. <laughs> That's it for my chat with Kevin Richardson. To check out more of our time together at the sanctuary and see some of the big cats, head over to youtube.com slash Thanks again for listening, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. <laughs>